0: Louder! Thrill me. Black is midnight on a moonless night. Bitches leave. Truly. Fucking hold up, hold up. Well, then, there, motherfucker! It's got a death curse! Let's fuck! I'll fuck anything that moves! <laughs> Let's show this prehistoric bitch how we do things downtown. Boom. Have <laughs> Oh, damn enchiladas!
1: These guys are 11. Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turnin', ass kicking, my cheese, drip master podcast and mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lang bringing you the six-year anniversary edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. Tonight, we're going to pop open a bottle of champagne. We're going to toast the beginning of a new season of episodes headlined by a film that will forever be in my top ten favorites of the horror or any genre, 1976's coming-of-age classic, Carrie, directed by the great Brian De Palma and adapted from the novel written by everybody's favorite horror meister and cocaine aficionado, Stephen King. Lots of good stuff headed this way, guys, but first, here's some messages from our sponsors. Hey wrestling fans, this is Eddie Shepard one half of the guys over at Wrestling Recommendations telling you to check out our podcast. Each week myself and my best friend Travis Lassiter dive in with a deep retrospective and watch along to some of our favorite matches. We have created a list of over 200 plus matches spanning over 40 plus years. We take all those matches, we throw them into a randomizer and the very next week that's the match we cover. Check us out at Wrestling Recomm on Twitter, R E C O M M, and Wrestling Recommendations on Facebook, and you can find us wherever podcasts are available. And let us bring our wrestling recommendations to you. Do you love metal? Are you a nerd? Well, have I got the podcast for you? It's the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast, hosted by me, Metal Thrashing Mike. And every episode, I'll be bringing you fans from the world of underground heavy metal, just waiting for you to hear them. So go check us out on all major streaming services as the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast.
0: Come on down to Masked by Lance. Premium Friday the 13th custom-made hockey mask. Down there in Tennessee by Lance McKinney. Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Masked by Lance. Go order one now, boy. Yee-hoo! Hey, assholes, it's me, Boner the Skeleton, mascot of the rants from the Black Lodge podcast, here to sell you some shit you probably can't afford. Are you low on cash? That's not a problem. Sell your blood. Sell your children. Go to the jack-off clinic and give them a sperm sample. We don't care how you get the money, as long as you give it to us. Would you like a t-shirt? A mug or a sticker to show that you're a true friend and a member of the Rant Army? Well, all you gotta do is go to RantArmy.com. And if you don't buy something, then fuck you!
1: Dive into the new action-packed thriller, Mr. Black. This is a story about a mafia hitman, Mr. Black, whose latest target is nothing like he's had to deal with before. Mr. Valentino is a man that's into the dark
0: arts, who calls in the Grim Reaper to kill Black. However, the spell fails to be fully successful, as he is still murdered. Now, Death himself is pursuing Mr. Black relentlessly. Now who can Black turn to for help?
2: Who can stop a curse like this? Get Mr. Black on Amazon Books, or as a digital download on Kindle.
1: All right, it's August, and you know what that means. It's our six-year anniversary, and I can think of no better movie to celebrate with than the film we're going to be spotlighting this month, Stephen King's freshman novel, focused through the lens of the great director Brian De Palma. We have 1976's coming-of-age classic, Carrie. Hell yeah. I'm your host, Brandon A. Lane, and joining me is somebody that I would gladly dump pig's blood on. Hell
2: yeah, dump (laughs) it all over me, Daddy. The Boozerweight Champion of Podcasting. Give it up for Fat Tony. Thank you very much. I can't wait to talk about this movie. This is, there's so
1: much, there's so much meat on the bone. One of my all-time favorite films, so let's hit the ground running. Carrie was released November 16th, 1976, meaning that we're coming up on the 47-year anniversary Almost of Almost half a century. Almost half a century of an amazing film. Now, obviously, neither of us were alive in 1976. No. When did you very first see Carrie? I was
2: about 10 or 11. right before I started masturbating because I didn't immediately <laughs> just start spanking it during that shower scene, but it was almost close.
1: This was a film that I avoided like the plague growing up because I was a kid that just didn't. I needed a monster of some kind. I, and get I, didn't, that. I didn't view Carrie as a monster, but viewing it through the lens of like 11, 12 years old, I realized. How great just a piece of film it was, and even superficially it just works as a great film. But when you get into the minutia about you know child abuse and you know and religious uh, oppression, yeah, all that stuff. And vaginas really are fucking scary. Vagina at that age. Beat you ding uh. off. So uh, <laughs> estimated budget. One million eight hundred thousand dollars. Uh, pretty good I budget. I would have thought it been higher, though. Good, I mean, from what good it budget, looks like, yeah, pretty good budget for a smaller, uh, smaller film that they're yeah. taking a shot on. Box office thirty three million eight hundred thousand. So it was an absolute success.
2: At that horror movie payback, you yeah. know, as it's starting the horror trend's starting to build.
1: Now, Cor- uh, Corey, Carrie graduated <laughs> yeah. to blockbuster yes. status with an audience. Well, you know, with the audiences who saw it at, in the theater, but let's check out the report card on what the critics no, thought. What do you think the IMDb rating is for Carrie? It should be around ninety-two, ninety-three
2: 93. Out of 10? Oh, out of
1: 10, uh, 9.2 to... It's- Nine. S- only a 7.4 They're stupid and wrong I absolutely agree Way too low However Rotten Tomatoes Has it at a staggering Critical rating Of 93% Which That's I, about right Where
2: it should be I think
1: that's That's, that's pretty A on. movie Not an A plus What do you think The audience score is Oh
2: fuck Now that you say it Like that Probably less So like We'll say S- 87 77% ah, You're wrong You're wrong In your shit But you're not They're wrong Because The people posting The reviews Saw shit later
1: Metacritic, which we often hail as the absolute worst aggregate, staggering 86%. Surprisingly, they for once, they still got it wrong, but they were way closer to the margin. Yeah, they they're, yeah, fuck, fuck Metacritic. However, the one we usually put the most stock into, Google users, what do you think they have it at? Mm, 89. Close, 87%. That's wrong, but okay. Still too low. However, the one that matters the most, we give you out there... The chance to shout out loud how you feel about this particular movie. So in the Facebook group, we give two options. Carry good, carry bad. What do you think our... 95. 99%. Fuck you, Travis Last. Fuck
2: you, Travis. Steel cage match. Seven year anniversary. Me and you.
1: Yeah. One man enters... Two men enter, one man lane. No, only one man enters. Not only no, one man. man. And I'll beat your ass from outside. <laughs> All right, on Fat Tony's hit list, we have a staggering seventy-three kills. That averages one kill every one point one minutes. Fuck them kids! All right, Stank Dick Eddie's titty tally. We have seven supple sets of nineteen seventies great a titty meat on display, and four bushes. Four bushes. I
2: got to do the. I got to do the titty
1: tally <laughs> this time. It was nice. However, if you grew up watching. Uh, carry on cable like you know our generation yeah. did you might remember a carry being a lot less titillating than it actually is because Brian De Palma and it's not a Mandela effect Brian De Palma had the foresight to decide to shoot an alternate yeah. opening that way they could show it on CBS Saturday evening Absolutely. movie or, or whatever and rake in that uh, extra extra money on broadcast the back end. money yeah exactly so what are you gonna? If we had to grade this, grade, if grade. We had to grade this movie, what would you give it uh, on a report card?
2: A minus to an A. There's very little wrong with it, and most of what I'm convening is wrong is because I'm so young and the movie is so
1: like it's five years older than me. I'm gonna give it an A plus. I think it's a fantastic movie. And what? Fair enough. I can't fault that. What issues I have with it are absolutely minor. So, 1976 is definitely a quality over quantity year in terms of horror, but don't let the numbers fool you. There are plenty of heavy hitters, so let's just head back to the mid-70s, and we'll check out the stiff competition Hell for 1976. Yeah. So, Fat Tony, if you'd be so kind, read out the horror films that came out in okay. this glorious this year. This
2: year, my sister Jeanette was born. Fuck you, you're old. <laughs> Alice, Sweet Alice, Blood Sucking freak. great movie, Burnt Offerings. Drive-In Massacre, Eaten Alive, The Food of the Gods, Grizzly, The Remake of King Kong, Great Movie, Loved as a Kid, The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, The Motherfucking Omen, and The Town That Dreaded Sundown.
1: Now, unfortunately, most of the box office returns were not available for these movies, so we're going to widen our scope to the entire year for all genres of film, and we're going to find out where Carrie lands on the overall scheme of 1976. So, out of the top 20 movies all year, where do you think Carrie lands? 13 to 15, somewhere in there. You
2: said 30 million. That's that's a lot of money for 1976, but you know, somewhere toward the bottom end.
1: All right. So we're gonna we're gonna hit the ground running. Number 20, Across the Great Divide. It's an adventure film. Couple of orphans cross crossing it like a mountain mm. yeah it's not my cup of tea number 19 Network one of the greatest films fucking of all time fucking great Fantastic movie I'm mad, I'm, mad, I'm mad as hell I'm mad as hell number 18 Logan's Run fun sci-fi fucking movie great movie cheesy. so dumb but so great cheesy but fun uh, number 17 Carrie so it's in the top 20. yeah okay Number 16, we have the outlaw Josie Wells, which is a terrific Clint Eastwood Western. Yep. Number 15, we have Taxi Driver with uh, Martin Scorsese, sleep-deprived, uh, mentally unstable Robert De Niro. It's great. great it stuff.
2: almost got Reagan killed, so it's all good.
1: <laughs> I did it for you, Josie Foster. <laughs> I did it for you. Uh, number 14, we have another sleep-deprived person with Dustin Hoffman in the, uh, the role of Marathon Man. Great, great Is music. it safe? <laughs> number 13, Murder by Death. It's kind of like a, a realistic version of Clue. A decent movie, sort of fallen a little under the cultural I radar these days. It. Number 12, The Pink Panther Strikes Again. Fuck yes. Oh, no, wait, that's Sellers. a Peter Sellers. Say- yeah, that's Peter Sellers. Great movie. And uh, coming at number 11, we have a comedy, Silent Movie, Mel Brooks. Uh, minor Mel Brooks, but still very good. No. <laughs> Marcel Marceau. Google it, kids. One of, the, one of the funniest lines of all time, because nobody like, else speaks dialogue The one guy who shouldn't does. World great famous himself. mime. Number 10, the Bad News Bears. Walter Matthau and a bunch of foul mouth kids playing Heck baseball yeah. the wrong way. Great stuff. Number nine, we have Midway. It's a pretty good Charlton Heston, yeah, Peter war, Fonda good, war movie. main potato war. Number eight, Dirty Harry kills hippies in The Enforcer. Hell great, yeah. Great stuff. Number seven, and we have a heavy hitter of horror. We have The Omen. It's one of the all-time greatest Hell little yeah. kid devil movies. Absolutely, um, it's the, the trifecta of like you know the seventies satanic panic movies. The Omen, uh, the This Exorcist started the
2: satanic panic. I uh, blame Rosemary's it, baby.
1: Yeah. Uh, number six, All the President's Men, fantastic political thriller. Number five, the movie that invented the comedy action genre, Silver Street. Hell yes. We absolutely love it. We direct
2: sold- does, like. Without that movie, there'd be no Die Hard. I made that argument
1: many times. With that movie, I don't think there would be a. a I don't think there'd be a Ghostbusters the, because of, honestly, allowing yeah. comedies to have budgets that That's big true. And yeah. it never never happened. Number four, the remake of King Kong. It's not perfect, but it's. it's I love it's, that movie. Technical achievements are very very high in that. Number three. Uh, the world loved Barbara Streisand in 1976. We have a star is born. It's crap, and the remake of the remake was better. I agree. 100 percent. Number two, a movie that was basically the avatar of its day. It was made so much money and then completely went away. We have To fly.: Oh okay. Okay, okay. yeah, it. that that great movie, To fly. Never yeah, I' heard of it. Number one, what do you think it is? Uh God, it's not Godfather. I don't know. Tell me. One of the greatest movies of all time. We have Sylvester Stallone starring and his oh. titular role other than Rambo, Rocky, Rocky Academy Award winning film, and it grossed over $100 million in 1976, which is That's a shit ton of money. Now, The Omen wins at the box office in terms of horror movies in yeah. 1976, but which of those two films, it being it and Carrie, has stood the test? More
2: of time? tropes and things used in Carrie have transferred to future movies. ...than the Omen. I mean, the Omen had some great kills. The special effects techniques were probably used further. But, like... Like, the hand jumping out at the end. the, The... The damage... The high school bully element. Like, carry... Has a, it spread its seed wider. I think it's
1: more of a resonant film. Yeah. Because especially if you, at some point, if you watch it and you're a teenager, you can identify with it to some yeah. degree. Where if you're not a religious person, you may not, you know, get into the omen. Not in the even same a way. teenager.
2: I Like, as an adult, I'm like, fuck them kids. You go, Carrie.
1: Have you ever existed in a time where you did not see at least one person dressed as Carrie on Halloween? No, never. It, is, it has identified itself in the same likes that the McDonald's arches have. It's a piece of iconography yes, that will absolutely. not go away. So Carrie, the image of Carrie, drenched in blood, has superseded the pop culture zeitgeist. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the omen loses well, out like on
2: this one. My wife, had until we watched it together, she'd never actually watched it all the way through. But she'd seen so much of it, she thought she'd had. Like, there was so much just in the zeitgeist of, you know, popular culture. She thought she'd seen the whole movie. Then we watched it, she's like, no, I, I guess I've never seen
1: it. Well, I mean, so much of the, some of the scenes are you know, are Exactly, are used in, in every other thing, you know. All right, 1976 just wasn't a banger year for horror. It was a banger year for... For the writer of this novel, that being the cocaine-fueled aficionado of horror, the great Stephen King. So let's go from page to screen. Stephen King began his writing career in 1959 when he and his brother David independently produced their own local newspaper called Dave's Rag. This little newspaper would spark Stephen to pursue writing as uh, entirely as his career. But we have sort of an interesting uh, position to talk right here. He chose to write fiction. Do you think that Stephen King could have prospered as a non-fiction writer? No,
2: not to the level and extent he's done. His imagination runs much wilder than reality can keep up with. The, the, I do know he's done a non-fiction thing about like his kids' like Little League softball like world championship thing, and I read it. It's okay, but no,
1: that doesn't spark my interest whatsoever. No, absolutely. But, but I, I do think that because of his attention to detail, especially in his later work, I think that he could be a fantastic person. If, to, he wanted, if you wanted to,
2: he could do it.
1: If you wanted a book that had every single conceivable detail about something, I think he absolutely could write that. Yeah, you know, it might not. It would read more like a textbook. He maybe. He could, a, but he wouldn't have
2: flourished as much as a novelist.
1: Um so King has been categorized as quote unquote not a real writer by some those literary critics and um other authors. Um Stephen has one of my all-time favorite quotes about unpretentious comebacks and I I want to want to give it to you. I am the literary equivalent of a big mac and fries. I think that says it all because damn right King, it hits the spot. It
2: tastes good. It's comforting. It's what you want. It's it's not S on on toasted baguette slices or, or any bullshit so like that. Fuck the
1: French. Snails are not meant to be eaten. You frog, yeah. frog men. Yeah, fuck you all. Of shit. Freedom fries. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so in the in. In terms of critics and other writers, do you think they're just jealous of King's success, which has been immense over the years? Or is he truly just the fast food equivalent? No, no,
2: because if there's a fast food equivalent, it's James Patterson. He has nothing of value, but he's easily digestible. Stephen King has good themes, issues, suspense. The only time I've ever been scared, not in suspense, but scared reading the book was reading Stephen King's It.
1: I, I 100%. Com- I completely agree with you. So, so
2: no. I have never been scared reading a book. He's not some flash in the pan, oh, everybody
1: likes him, so he has to suck. No, he's fucking great. I think he's much better than he ever gets credit for. In 1970, King would graduate from the University of Maine with a Bachelor of Science degree, uh, but would end up working at a filling station. King spent his days hard at work pumping gas at night, and he would toil away writing short stories, which would be published in some seedy magazine. Carno's. <laughs> and a legend has it, the real turning point of Stephen King's life came in 1971 when he met Tabitha Spruce, who would later become his... You know, wife, Tabitha King. Yep. So, as legend has it, Stephen King writes the first draft of Carrie, throws it in the garbage because he's so frustrated because it's just not coming to it. Yep. She fishes it out and insists, like, no, you have something here. Please continue on. So my question to you, if Carrie had not been released, would Stephen King have become the king of horror?
2: Uh, no. He he might have made a career, as, as I've said before. He might have made a career in horror. But without this book making this movie boosting his brand right at the perfect time, he'd have been met probably a working author, but not any not the hundreds of millions of dollars he's made. What you have to
1: realize is like it doesn't matter how good something is; it's how good something is and how much of it reaches yeah, the populace. It's not
2: just talent; it's luck. So mostly without, luck.
1: So without the luck of Double day Producing the, you know, publishing the the novel and it getting turned into a movie and it becoming yeah. this juggernaut, the king of horror would never have taken his crown. Nope. And that's my humble opinion. Anyway. Absolutely. So as I alluded to in 1973, Carrie would be submitted to Doubleday, where it was purchased for publication in March. Bear that in mind. Sold and adapted into a feature film in May. So in the span of five months, Stephen King went from a nobody to an A-list author. He received yeah. two hundred thousand dollars. And he's quit his teaching job, and Talk to him kids again. He's, he's <laughs> been pursuing writing full time ever since. And let's just break it down real quick: The Shining, Salem's Lot, Misery, Pet Cemetery, The Stand, The uh, It, The Green Mile, The Dead Zone, Cujo, The Shawshank Redemption, and like a hundred other novels—all stuff that is stuck to the the floor. Of Americana, and yeah. whether you look down and see it or you walk over it, it's there. It is ingrained, and in, it's as much a part of American culture as the American yes, flag is. absolutely. So where do you rank Kerry? Oh, it's bottom, it's bottom tier
2: King. It's I've read 90% of King, if not 99%. It's bottom K- tier King, but it's still bottom tier King is better than most people's.
1: I love Stephen King. Yeah. Um, But I'm going to kind of harp on what you just said and and agree with the sentiment uh, that this is the exception to the rule where the adaptation is better than the source material. It's like
2: this, Fight Club, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Forrest Gump are the only movies I've ever seen that are better than the books.
1: It's, It's definitely a... Hard, act oh yeah. to achieve
2: absolutely.
1: Um, before we give our verdict, <laughs> let's let's talk about the differences between the novel and the film, and there are quite a few. Yes, absolutely. So we have the story in the movie; it's linear, very easy three act structure, yeah. it's your typical you know film. But in the novel, it jumps back and forth. And that, work, that works yeah. when you're reading something. It doesn't really work as well in film. Exactly. It can work, but generally that's jarring to you yeah. know, your average audience. Carrie is described as overweight with bad acne, whereas in the movie, you know, she's, she's sissy space at thin, ex. no makeup, you know, oh, hair. it's a hot liquid woman with no makeup. Ah, the freak. Alright, similarly, uh, the description of Margaret White in the novel is she's overweight, white hair, as opposed to, you know, Piper Laurie, who's kind of thin. Sex hair. on wheels, man. <laughs> Don't get me fucked up. In the novel, Carrie has her abilities for quite some time, but in the movie, they sh- start shortly after her first period. Not yes. not first period of class, but, you know. Her first the man sees. <laughs> in the novel, Carrie has the ability to communicate telepathically. That's not in the movie, no whatsoever. Probably. I like that
2: they cut that out completely. Just yeah, let probably, her fuck shit up.
1: Probably for the better because um, I could just imagine 1970s. You know, visually yes. and that it would be very, very uh, six million dollar man. Exactly. In my head. <laughs> all right. Uh, Margaret's backstory is glossed over in the movie, but she's much more uh, fleshed out in the novel. Uh, yeah, really in a it. bad
2: way. You don't want to. You don't want to meet Margaret White. It's uh, all bad.
1: Uh, Margaret's abuse of Carrie is really toned down in the movie, and it's, just, and it's still I mean, pretty fucked
2: up in the movie. It's just it is, but it's it's much normal more, fucked up. It's much up. more physical yeah.
1: in in the book. Um, the character of Sue Snell much more prominent in the novel. In fact, she's your uh, point of reference yeah, character, point of view character. Yeah, yeah, you you need her because she's essentially telling the story. And as it breaks up, you're kind of going. To from the what's going on contemporarily with her telling her story in the yes. police station, and then it cutting back and you know what's going on with Carrie and, absolutely and so, on, so on and so forth. Uh, the novel takes place in Maine, just like most of Every, Kim's work, but they yeah. made the decision to set it in North Carolina, and I, I'm wondering if this they is have, an odd choice like th- of everywhere. I'm wondering if that has to do with. Uh, sissy spacex accent if that was it might i never thought of
2: that before but she's the only one in the whole movie with a noticeable southern accent in north carolina now um
1: Believe it or not. Uh, She's
2: a coal miner's daughter. Oh, she won an Academy Award for that. Yeah, I had to throw that uh, in.
1: Billy and Chris are much more evil in the book, Bel- believably. As uh, bad as
2: they are in this fucking movie, they are worse. They're much worse in the Stephen book. Stephen King bullies are always like homicidal
1: fucking lunatics. Yeah, they're basically every every teenage delinquent uh, has the potential to become Hitler in exactly. a, Stephen King, in a St- Stephen King book. All right, in the novel... Carrie makes it rain rocks and burns down a good chunk of her town. We're in the movie. It's much more subdued, yeah, probably for budgetary reasons. um, but I think they actually made the better decision oh, absolutely too, the the ending of the movie now, taking all that into consideration, does the movie benefit from changing these absolutely
2: one hundred percent of it benefits, like as we just said, it's better than the book I, like when I Carrie can't... kills her mom after her mom stabs her. In that super sexy scene uh, where Piper Lori's being crucified as she always wanted to by all the weapons and basically having an orgasm. And then, like, her dragging her to her little Harry Potter prayer closet under the stairs as the whole house sinks. <laughs> like, it's genuinely tragic. Like, it's genuinely like, yeah, if there's a hell, you're going to hell. You're a murderer. So, you you're everything's ruined.
1: Yes. For better or for worse, you can attribute a lot of these changes to Lawrence D. Cohen, who adapted King's book into the screenplay that would be used during filming. Yep. Now, Lawrence's writing on Carrie would land him a nomination for a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. So, tip of the you. I didn't to know had a
2: Hugo Award for like movies and
1: stuff like the adaptations. Uh, the reason I bring up Lawrence, uh, he's adapted quite a few of King's works, uh, both for... For, for positive and for negative, oh, he's done um, he, some stinkers. He did it, the television series, and he did Tommy Knockers. Carrie's um, Kerry, praised, rightfully so. Yeah. It has mixed reviews, and Tommy Knockers is it's not very at good.
2: At its core, kind of is the novel. Tommy Knockers, at its core, is kind of the They're not great adaptations of what, when you read it's great. They don't drop the ball. I mean, it's the source material, not his fault, and the medium. It's network TV.
1: Okay, well, what kind of concessions
2: are necessary for adapting? You got to cut out like all the the child rape, child rape, child orgies. It's not orgies. rape. It's consensual. <laughs> uh, you got to cut out all like the period talk. The the it's lots of sex stuff that was in Tommyknockers. I uh, you just you got to cut it down family friendly you which never to, has worked
1: you got to learn to drown kittens that's a that's exactly. an industry term for for editing and i know that uh, king in more recent years uh, because he's become so big is that his novels don't really get yeah he's edited. like fuck you
2: i'm stephen king and He Who can the write fuck it, you to tell write, me to... he can write as long as he needs to but I guess, back in the day cocaine there's old king which is bullshit 800 pages with 300 pages of good stuff And then under the dome, which is a thousand-page novel that just rips right through.
1: So, I mean, there's examples of good, bad, and yeah, and, and indifferent. But when you're adapting these things to screen and you have a thousand-page novel and you have a 90-minute movie, you're going to have to sacrifice Absolutely. Uh, characters sometimes. Like just, I mean, excise them completely from yeah. the book. You know, a lot of uh, character development. And it really is an art to adapt anything into the from one medium to oh, another. I'm, yeah. I'm so a- I, I feel bad for anybody that's had to adapt his work into something else. Now, concessions are no... We're here to talk about the movie, and it's what a movie it is. So good. Not the novel. So, Fat Tony, if you'd be so kind to read the synopsis for 1976's Carrie. Let me
2: get my glasses, because I'm old and blind. Based on the best-selling Stephen King novel, this absolutely spellbinding horror movie, said Roger Ebert before his jaw dropped off, (laughs) has become a pervasive pop culture touchstone. For anyone who's ever wanted to get even, Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie deliver Oscar-nominated performances, and John Travolta and Amy Irving are terrific in this ultimate revenge fantasy that has become one of the all-time great horror classics. At the center of the terror is Carrie Sissy Spacek, a high school learner with no confidence, no friends, and no idea about the extent of her powers of telekinesis. But... When her psychotic mother and sadistic classmates finally go too far, the once shy teen becomes an unrestrained, vengeance-seeking powerhouse who, with the help of her special gift, cause all hell to break loose in a famed cinematic frenzy of blood, fire, and brimstone.
1: Now... As great a writer as Stephen King can be, his work has notoriously been hard to adapt successfully. Yeah. This is one of the exceptions to the rule. Thankfully, in the instance of Carrie, we have one of the all-time greats in the directing chair, Brian De Palma. Yes. Let's just run down his works. Phantom of the Paradise, great movie. Dressed to Kill, although his role is small, you have... David Margulies, who would go on to play Mayor Lenny in Ghostbusters. Yep. So You Just Got Busted. Uh, blowout, Scarface, which I think is entirely overrated. Yes. Great performance, but uh, not a great movie. No. Body Double, although the role is small. You have Slotvia Jovan, who <laughs> that same year would cement herself in 1980s pop culture zeitgeist. Becoming Gozer the Gozerian in Ghostbusters, you just got busted. A direct
2: busting, yeah.
1: And then you've got his later output, uh, The Untouchables, Raising Kane, Carlito's Way, Mission Impossible, Snake Eyes, and more recently, The Black Dahlia. He's also directed some very popular music videos, including Dancing in the Dark by Bruce Springsteen and Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which is pretty much just a scene in the movie. If you want to go
2: to it. Yeah,
1: you're right. Like,
2: I didn't know he was a music video director before, like we were talking about this. So that surprised me. Yeah, it pretty much is in the movie. He
1: didn't start out as one. He became one. He became one after. Like, that's weird. He has such a, such a cinematic eye. I think that, that during the dawn, like that really, that heyday of MTV, they're like, we want a a, a music video to look like a, like a movie. Pretty much. I get that. So, In 2023, where we're at right now, Brian De Palma is hailed as one of the greatest directors of all time, but that hasn't always been the consensus, especially back in the 70s and 80s. Nick Chen of Days Digital had this to say. Despite the mainstream success of Mission Impossible and The Untouchables, De Palma generally makes artful trash of the highest order, kind of the OTT genre exercises which silence Slice audience down the middle. Nominated five times for worst director at the Razzies. He's an artist like Paul Verhoeven, whose films were lambastic by critics on release, but celebrated by cinephiles in retrospect. Good reviews come to those who wait 20 years. Now, the article that, quote... Comes from. It's worth checking out because it really highlights the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the perceptions of De Palma's work. So I'll be referencing it uh, yeah. from time to time. But we got to put in our two cents in just a moment. Um, Chen calls De Palma's work, quote unquote, artful trash of the highest order. So we're going to be using that as a talking point. Uh, but I want to read one more quote real quick. The common dispute over Brian De Palma is whether misogynistic streak runs through his movies, namely the reoccurrence of beautiful women, often strippers and prostitutes, who kick the bucket with immaculate choreography. And then there's Dress to Kill, which (laughs) would be a goddamn magnum opus, were it not for the indefensible transphobic twist. Then again, his films are absurd pastiches of pastiches that lampoon Hollywood stereotypes and toy with the The Social taboos yeah. with the fevered debates lasting decades beyond the final credits, you'll suspect it's all part of his plan. Now, here's a question. Are the films of Brian De Palma the result of genius or simply artful trash from a lowbrow misogynist? They are artful
2: trash from a highbrow non misogynist for his time. The uh, killer in dress to Kill is not a trans woman. They are a mentally disturbed serial killer like Norman Bates, as he took his inspiration from. It's a direct modernization of his, Psycho. It's his version of Psycho. So it doesn't represent the trans community, nor is it even ever intended to. It's a crazy man who ever gets horny has his alter ego, go kill what made him horny. So no... But it is artful trash.
1: And Angie Dicks, Dickinson, come on. Man,
2: when Ooh. we get to the shower, I have a top three sexiest shower scenes of Brian De Palma.
1: To me, De Palma is legitimately one of the best to ever do it. But let's hear what he has to say about his critical reception. I've never been accepted as that conventional artist. Whatever you say about David Lynch or Martin Scorsese, they are considered major film artists, and nobody can argue with that. I've never had that. I've had people say it about me. I've had plenty, I've had, and I've had people say that I'm a complete hack. And you know, derivative and all those catchphrases that people use for me. So I've had, so I've always been controversial. People hate me or love me. Critically, Brian De Palma most routinely seems to be condemned for his overuse of the damsel in distress trope. I get that. Um, he had this to say about his portrayal of women on film. Women are more sympathetic creatures in jeopardy, plus they're more interesting to photograph. I'd rather photograph a woman walking around with a candelabra than a guy. It's as simple as that. Somebody once said that the history of cinema was made photographing women, and I think Think one and I think one could truthfully say that. Okay? Yeah. I
2: mean, yeah, I get it. But, you know. He
1: right, we love slasher films here at Rants. Yeah. Um it's bread and butter. And, baby. and and there are examples to the contrary of this, but generally it's a final girl because you want to see the attractive girl put into peril and scream and she looks Keep him, getting still, harder, still attractive than <laughs> yeah. James no, so, I get what you're saying. So I, I, I mean, it's just an old Hollywood thing. I mean, going it back is. to the the, day, the the dawn of film, an attractive woman is going to draw more people's eyes than a man.
2: I do have to say, he's no David Lynch. He's talking pissy that David Lynch is getting good reviews and he's not. I look. And he kind okay, the whole derivative thing that he's our American Giallo, the our greatest American giallo director. I absolutely. Yeah, and I don't mean that as a
1: knock. I love Giallo movies. Absolutely. The next polarizing element of his career is him leaning heavily on the style of Alfred Hitchcock. So, is De Palma's style a Hitchcock homage, or is it just outright plagiarism? It's
2: a Quentin Tarantino homage. It's not an outright plagiarism. There's plenty elements that are different. Yes, they do use directly the psycho music in this movie, the
1: re-re-re,
2: but no, it's it's like Quentin Tarantino using shots or, or something from another past thing.
1: Yeah, I think that visually his style, it's, it's different, but... His films often fall into the same kind of beats. They fall into the beats,
2: but as good thrillers should fall yeah, into the I mean, beats. I think, it's not. I
1: think that's just. Yeah, that his. It's obvious hero worship, but I don't think you can call it plagiarism. No. because he does something that's different. What I'm saying. It. Yeah, he takes the foundation and builds a new house upon it.
2: Absolutely.
1: So homage or plagiarism, De Palma freely admits from the following uh, uh, the Hitchcock blueprint. He had this to say. He is the one who's distilled the essence of film. He's like Webster. It's all there. I used a lot of his grammar. All right. Preamble out of the way. Let's talk about De Palma's contribution to Carrie. And for my money, we can distill that down to a couple of scenes. Okay. All right. We'll discuss the bloody carnage when we get to our victims. Yep. The prom scene, um, which is an absolute masterpiece. But the film in its entirety was shot over the course of 50 days. But That's- over two weeks Of that fifty days was dedicated just to the prom scene, not just the 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 overall everything at the prom. Yes, at at all,
2: it's time well spent.
1: They that also doesn't take into account the six weeks of post production and editing just to do the split screen,
2: which is yeah, the split screen is fucking legendary. It's it's amazing. The editor, the editing in this movie is immaculate.
1: Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about what makes that scene great before you get to the chaos and the split screen and all that, you have this long uncut shot of the camera going through the, the prom and you have all these people sitting and drinking their punch. And, and you see the nefarious plot of Chris and Billy and all the people doing this. And it follows that rope all the way up. And then you have the bucket that is masterful filmmaking. It's the type of filmmaking that crews absolutely hate because if you're in the crew and you're in you know the yeah. the not the guild but the uh oh what's uh, the word
2: I'm looking for uh fucking uh uh the WGA No I'm sorry uh, that's the broader
1: term for it. Profession? No the whether oh God we're on strike. What are yeah they, that's what I was saying. No, the, but what what are they called? Uh, what you? What it is union? Is it? Union. Union. Okay, union. Sorry, like people. We're top-notch <laughs> professionals kind of here. A, if you are in a union, you have hours that you work, and then, like, if you want to, if if the crew elects to stay around, they will, but they never do because yeah. they don't have incentive. to Nothing people. So. To get this type of stuff done, it really wears down mentally and physically on a crew because they don't care if the movie yeah. succeeds or fails it's because they there's, check no, there's way. no financial incentive to. So in a lot of ways, this is why filmmaking has become so pedestrian and they're trying to make every
2: everything modular they can fix it in post let's do it digital blah 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 there right was up.
1: No, and there was none of that back then yes so what you have is a person who has a very specific vision and you got to think like these cameras they don't auto focus so you have to have the dp focus f- is this focusing yeah. as you're going through that and it is just an amazing piece of filmmaking i can't say enough positively about it
2: yeah no it's shot great um I don't like the diopter shots because they're so dated to my brain where, like, something's focused in the foreground and something's focused in the background. Earlier, you're talking, we're talking split screens. I, had, I
1: actually really like that. Uh, it was, it was not. Uh, it's not
2: when it came out. even actually kind of, because then he is borrowing from heavily from Jalo, but, like, his diopter shots in this movie aren't taken. But anyway, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about split screen and the whole prom scene so, and everything going on. Professionals.
1: Uh, <laughs> so, in the history of cinema, there there are a handful of like these these long tracking shots. Um, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, yep, is one of them. It's not exactly an uncut shot, because yeah, they hide it well though. But because a, a film camera could only hold so much film, like thirty-two at time. minutes, I think. So it was... yeah, you know, they they hide and, it very well. But that I think that was probably the inspiration. Yeah,
2: there's that great Warner there, and then the whole dance scene number, which is almost like I've heard people compare to like the tornado in Wizard of Oz, because the spinning and yeah. then she's just getting taken out of reality. That's an amazing, like it's fucking great.
1: There's a movie called Russian Ark. Uh, that it has it's it, Russian. It, it's probably the most impressive filmmaking feats of all time, because it's everybody in like classic, you know, Victorian oh, guard. Yes, I know what you're talking and about. Yeah, the entire s- scene of this like elaborate dance sequence in a ballroom yeah. is done that way.
2: Um, then Ivan Gra- Drago got knocked out by Rocky, and it <laughs> got erased from existence. Exactly,
1: as it should be. USA, USA. Um, Goodfellas. That's yeah, probably the Contemporarily good. the one That everybody would remember Where they're going Is at the Copa Cabana Yes And um, that that's a fantastic Piece of filmmaking John Wick uh, Chapter
2: 4 Has a great Warner uh, Done with a drone shot Above of a shotgun fight With dragon breath uh, Shotgun shells
1: I haven't seen part 4 it's
2: yet It's so fucking good dude It's on my list Get on
1: it He has it on Plex <laughs> Alright uh, Film crews Generally hate this kind of Filmmaking as we've done yeah, For it's the em- time innumerable reasons Uh, De Palma had this to say about the complications of stylized filmmaking. You try to do your best you can do under the circumstances it's intended with. And if you're fortunate and if everything is clicking that day, you might come up with something remarkable. I can't think of many instances where I left the playing field and not felt accomplished at what I set out to do. Now the other scene of note is the dream sequence finale and a good finale has been stolen and repurposed.
2: Yeah, so uh, well, let's never do it again for a hundred years. But it was done right here and in Friday the Thirteenth. we're going to
1: talk specifically about Friday the Thirteenth. So let's talk about this scene in particular because you have you have um, you have Friday the Thirteenth, which is well, let me back up. You have okay. Carrie, Carrie, where it is shot in reverse. And you have the fuzzy outline around, you know, basically they they, they smeared like the camera with Vaseline to give it that dreamlike quality. So they're they're very intentionally putting you in the mindset of like, this is not reality. This is a dream. And it works for this movie. Yeah. Friday the 13th, on the other hand, takes the exact same idea and they take that dream element away. So yeah, when think Harry, Man- Harry Manfredini's music swells. The only time Alice-
2: there's music when, when the killer's on screen. And they've tr- yeah. they've given you that. But, but, the, but this it, yes.
1: music is nice and it's fluttery. Slowly. And the cops are in the background. And you think Alice is going to be saved. And here comes Jason out of the water and pulls her under. I'm about to get crucified.
2: Uh-oh. Uh-oh. He's going to say Friday the 13th is better than Carrie.
1: It is. In my humble, I'm
2: not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to disagree with you. Honestly, they they gave us the foundation with Carrie. I agree. It's great. It's an iconic ending. So many have done. Probably the best use of it is in Friday the Thirteenth because they disarm you with the reality of
1: it. But here's the difference in the two, and both suit their film particularly. Yes. Friday the 13th, it's a jump scare to get a reaction yeah. out of you. That That is, that is you want their date to jump in your lap if you're in the movie theater. And Carrie, the aftermath, immediately following this, her is Sue just, I mean, Traumatized erupting, as fuck. And it's to show that even though she survived, it's never going to leave she her. She survived until Carrie to the rage. We'll talk about <laughs> it. Oh, I I love Carrie. Uh, the ending of Carrie is great. So good. Um, but come on, I, I I think we're I think we're just gonna have to agree that Friday Thirteenth at the very least. Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a it's better. Probably, it's probably not better filmmaking, but it's but it's a better implementation of a yeah, jump scare. Yeah, absolutely.
2: It's like Halloween wasn't the first slasher movie, but it was like better than Psycho. It was done. It was utilized more effectively. Carrie, and we can talk about that later. Then move on.
1: Just for the record, Carrie is a thousand percent better made movie than Friday the 13th. Oh, yeah. Across boy. the board, so I don't want to We're get... We're talking about one jump scare one, scene. One jump scare. There's actually, for my money, only a couple of things that are wrong with Carrie. And I want to point to them very quickly. The prom montage may be the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen in a movie. You have them hoed donkey and and trying on their tuxes, and it's in fast motion, and it breaks the tension and the seriousness it's of the film. supposed
2: to. You're supposed to fall into the good time fun of it. It's not supposed to be tense.
1: And and maybe that works in 1976. Exactly. That's does, what I'm saying. But it doesn't work. Your in,
2: flaw is time-based, not movie-based.
1: But we're arguing... T- t- Carrie is a timeless masterpiece, yeah. and that is the one okay, thing. Okay, dates. It. Aside you're right. From, it, aside from the fashion, it's the one thing that dates this movie. Hey, that
2: one motherfucker's uh, uh, tuxedo T-shirt's
1: impeccable. I
2: agree. That <laughs> no, is, you're it, right. It though. is. Fantastic. I it. It
1: does, It's very.
2: There's elements that are dated because time makes fools of us all. You know.
1: All right, as great a director as Brian De Palma is, Carrie would have fallen apart if it had not been cast well. Thankfully, the film boasts great performances from pretty much every character you see on There's screen. There's no bad actors. But we have making her film debut, Amy Irving as Sue Snell. She was in Yentl, which is a terrible, terrible, terrible Barbara He just Barbara hates Streis- Barbra Streisand so much.
2: But then again, she stole the diamond of Pantheon, so... So here's South Park kids. here's the
1: thing. Um Barbara Streisand Probably not super happy with Amy Irving. You want to know why? Because she was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in the role. That being Amy, mm-hmm. not Barbara. She was in Mickey and Maud with the late uh, Dudley Moore. Uh, she re-teamed re-tuned with De Palma for Casualties of War. Yeah. Uh, she had a prominent role in Woody uh, the Woody Allen movie Deconstructing Harry. Hey, ew. Uh, Roll in Traffic, which won tr- uh, tons of Academy Awards. Don't know that one. Here's something I found out that I did not know. Yeah. Even though... Um, she's not the the voice uh, speaking. She was the singing voice for Jessica Rabbit in Who Framed Roger? I Rabbit. did
2: not know that. Holy shit!
1: That's the sexiest part of the fucking movie. Yeah, because it's not okay. Oh, what is it? Um, Jewel of the Nile actress that does her voice. Oh, in, um, um, uh, Kathleen Turner. Kathleen Turner. Yeah, she's got that that smoky raspy the, yeah, voice. I'm not
2: bad. I'm just drawn that way. But
1: she could not sing for shit. No. So. Amy Irvin, great voice. Super, super sexy. Didn't know that. Uh, last and certainly least, she was the original actor to reprise her role for the creatively devoid and so great cash grab. It so the rage much. Carrie 2. Table of the to Thoughts. The <laughs> Table of the Thoughts. We're going to get to it. I'm joking. More on it in a bit. It's garbage. Now, we can't talk about Amy without talking about her association with Steven Spielberg. Um, so let's take a step back. Spielberg was friends with Brian De Palma. And he visited the set. And And if rumors... He was young. He was
2: in his late 20s. He was out to get some poon.
1: If the rumors and innuendo hold up to that, he literally went down the line of every person in the cast and crew... Hey, will you go out with me? No. Will you go out with me? No. And she was the one person who said yes. Good for you, but This pays off so well. And this is according to PJ Souls that Spielberg asked every girl out, including her. And Amy is the one you to accept. You fucked up, bitch. So fast forward, 1985, and they, they get married. And they were married for quite a while. So first question. Is this an abuse of power, or is this just a guy no, being a it, guy? Like this,
2: okay? For now, in 2023, it'd be kind of fucked up. And actually, no, because the women said no with no repercussions. There was nothing bad. He was just—he wasn't the
1: director like, of this movie. Yeah, he but was other yeah, movies. Yeah, he
2: was trying to. He was just like, hey, 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 and this was more except, like again. This is over half a century, so we can't put our morals on it. But yeah, no, I mean, it's not great. It's not a great, but he kind of paid for it. I'm sure we'll, we'll get into
1: it. We definitely are going to. Good but, for uh, you,
2: Amy Irving.
1: <laughs> as I mentioned in the top sec- section, uh, Amy went on to win an Oscar and has been incredibly successful. But in the court of public opinion, there has always been this asterisk as- associated with her name yeah. and her career because of claims of nepotism. So a lot of the roles that she has gotten in her career uh post steven spielberg uh, some of them were attributed to his influence in Hollywood. So did Amy Irving succeed because of great
2: talent, or she might have got those roles for because of him? I'm not saying that's not a thing, but she killed every single one of them. It's not like, oh my God, remember the Amy Irving when she sang Jessica Rabbit's song at the nightclub? That was so garbage. No, that's fucking hot shit. Her talent sets her up. She she was supposed to be fucking Carrie. Until Sissy spacex you know the you know because she was fucking that production designer or dated the production designer. Said let still, her.
1: They're still married. We'll talk about. They're
2: that. still married. They're still married. Oh, good for them. But I'm just saying, let her. She was going to be Carrie. So no, she has talent on her own. Whether her husband like yeah, like give her to her. She could. She was up to the task. Sorry, that pisses me. That shit like that pisses me off. <laughs> All
1: right. Amy has always retained that she earned her own way and wasn't Samurai. given any preferential treatment. She had this to say, actors are not great breeds of people. I don't think. I count myself <laughs> as something of an exception. I grew up in the theater and my values were about the work and not being a star or anything like that. I'm not spoiled in that way. And if I fight for something, it's about the work, not about how big my trailer is. The opinion of her uh, not getting roles as a result of nepotism were so widespread that it actually caused sort of a rubber band effect where she lost out on several big roles because they were afraid yeah. of leaning into it. The big one being Marion Ravenwood in Raiders of the Lost yep. Ark. They made the right decision. Karen yeah, Allen. Karen,
2: Karen oh, Allen's my my dream girl. I love her forever, always.
1: I love you, Lumpy. <laughs> oh, Scrooge reference. Damn right. Uh, nepotism or not, the marriage didn't last, and they divorced in 1989, which landed Amy a hundred million dollars settlement. Jesus, fucking Christ! And a, and a, and Don't a, do a prenup on a restaurant napkin, people. An additional prenuptial payment of child and special spousal support. So she doesn't need any money. But back in 1976, a role in a movie was it was a big get for yeah. an up and coming actress. So her arc in the movie is the girl who's she's still kind of a little bit of a bitch. Yeah, they're all bitches. She's one
2: she's a sheep in the crowd enjoying it.
1: But she still has this like underpinning of sorrow. She's the only one who feels But bad she's the only one. You're that damn bad. right. So we kind of put her in the position of being the the redemptive quality and yes. the, the, the redemptive character in the film um, I have to feel like she's underdeveloped though because in the book yeah it, I mean just you always have more. to
2: but for the movie for the sake of streamlining the story maintaining tension and keeping everything moving along it does fine she felt bad she asked her boyfriend she kind of asked her even though her boyfriend's like I tried to ask the crazy bitch she didn't <laughs> I found this suit from an alien I can fly now so, her her arc is that she's unallowed to go to the prom. Yeah. Because she, she chooses not to go. She's not blocked from going. She chooses to put Carrie White above herself and ask her boyfriend to go. So, she's like, you know what? I was a bitch. I did a bitch thing. This is my self-imposed penance.
1: Well, she does have an element of this that could be viewed as... Kind of shitty, whether it's intended to be or not. So how do you feel about her persuading her boyfriend to take Carrie to the prom? I
2: mean, it's good and bad. Like, she thinks she's doing right, but in the end, she's doing harm because it's just giving her a taste of something she'll never have
1: again. I feel conflicted about it because every time I watch the movie, it, it seems like it kind of hits me different. And I know this, like, from my if, if I were you
2: know nobody if, asked him to prom. If
1: I were in, I actually did not go to my prom. I was
2: <laughs> fucking loser. I, in my cell. girl,
1: my girlfriend at the time would not <laughs> allow me, would not allow me to wear a yellow tuxedo and a Hulk Hogan bandana. That was my requirement to go to the prom.
2: Fair enough. Um, Never mind. I would draw all jokes.
1: <laughs> but I but prior to that, um, there was an instance where uh, where I was a junior in high school and I wasn't dating anybody. And, uh, you know, I asked a couple of girls to go and, and I didn't have it. You know, I didn't get to go. And that really, you know, it's a solemn feeling. And then, like, if somebody had went with me out of pity and then I found that out, I probably would have felt Hurt pretty worse. fucking bad about that. Worse than just being yeah. cut out rejected. So, I mean, this is sort of the domino falling that sets the things in motion for Carrie to become completely unhinged. This lifts her
2: unagency. up high enough because at first she's like you're tricking me there's a trick there's a trick her mom's like they're all going to laugh at you and then like he's like no I'm doing it cuz I want to you liked my poem uh and she she falls she drinks the Kool-Aid and I know it's flavored but she drinks the Kool-Aid enough <laughs> to kind of fall for it at the end that right there at the end that when the prank is pulled she's at the highest high she's ever had and hits the lowest low and that's why Everybody has to die, and I totally get it. Well, we'll
1: Yas Queen, we'll, Yas Queen, we'll talk about that in just. Yeah, a
2: well, I'm sure we'll get to it. But yeah,
1: the character of Sue survives the events of the film, but she is served a much worse fate as oh, being yeah. the only character to come back or for no, I, I, the I, I, Rage okay. Carrie Two. So <laughs> here's just my question to you: Is <laughs> Carrie Two the worst legacy sequel in horror history? No, but it's close. Uh, All right, well, what's number one? I was trying to, and
2: I even had this. Um, fuck. Fuck, I had it.
1: I'm going to say yes, it is, and because... I'll just say yeah, fuck it. I like
2: some of the kills at the end, though. But what, and I did like that they killed... They killed the only survivor from the first one. Like, right there with a... Was it like a fire
1: poker through the porthole at I don't the know, door? The, the fact that Carrie got a sequel, and it's called Carrie, and Carrie's not in the movie... Is so so, but so her daddy's
2: down. freak mutant sperm. See, it had nothing to do with sin or, or religious yeah, oppression. But this, at, the, at this point, we shining. Getting, her daddy's knocking. He's setting up franchises of mutant bitches all over yeah, the you're world. Getting,
1: you're getting into X-Men territory. That's at this what point. it is, and and I'm not down for that. <sighs> all right, one th- last thing before we move on. But here's a little bit of trivia: Sue's mother Eleanor played by her actual mother, Priscilla Pointer. I didn't know that was her mom. I just knew her from Nightmare on Street 3. So there you go. You've got a little little connection. All right. We go from one Academy Award winning actress to another with what may be my all-time favorite performance on screen. We have Piper Laurie as Margaret White. Long career going back to the 1950s. She didn't really hit it big until the 60s, but when she was nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for the movie The Hustler, that that's that's a fucking huge thing. And one thing, you would think that she'd be off to the races for getting the Oscar nod, but no, No, she retired. She retired, and she didn't return to acting until she got this role. Now, she would follow up Carrie with several smaller roles, including a personal favorite of mine- Return to Oz uh, and uh, Children of a Lesser God, where she would be nominated again for an Academy Award. Um, other than her Oscar nominated and, and roles, people will probably know her from Twin Peaks, uh, Catherine Martell. She's yep. the person, you know, kind of twisting the knife of uh, intrigue and stuff in the background, the ghostwood forest and all that. So I have to love her for those and
2: reasons. It's rants from the Black Lodge for a
1: reason. Exactly. I love you, Piper Laurie. We love and you. And I and I'm I'm very sad that your people got back to me and told me the only way you would be on this podcast is if I gave you five hundred dollars. I can't afford that. Yo- I, you should
2: have told me. I might have tried to come up with five hundred. <laughs> Sarah just got her college money back. I'd have I'd have stole it now.
1: All right. Because Piper had retired from acting, Brian De Palma set his sights on a different person to play Margaret, mm-hmm. that being Nurse Ratchet, oh. Louise Fletcher from Niels Foreman's One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. And I couldn't find any specific reasons as to why this never happened. But what do you think about this? Would Louise Fletcher I'd have been probably, a
2: better choice? It'd be, it would be more realistically upsetting then, like, Piper Laurie thought she was in a comedy by how over the top everything was having to be had.
1: We're going to talk about but Yeah, it.
2: we'll get to But I I don't, I think Nurse Ratchet and that's where I'll only ever call her, would have been going over the top would have been more upsetting, but less, like... Fun
1: in campus. She she plays. Ooh, I don't like her. She plays. Fuck that bitch. Hope she bitch dies. better probably than anybody anybody ever. ever been on film. And for all you Star Trek nerds out there, she played Kai Winn on Deep Space Nine. There's
2: no Star Trek nerds young enough to have seen Deep Space Nine. Well, she she's <laughs> basically
1: she's basically a Bajoran. Uh, religious head yes. and every every negative thing you say about a religious person you could say about Kai Wen so from that performance to this movie it really could have worked but I think Piper Lori's Piper Laurie hit that sweet spot that it's not like it's
2: upsetting it's but it's more, also entertaining
1: it is it is a there would have been no entertainment with that it bitch. is a performance that is both chilling and uh, giggly it is it, he was weak <laughs> Say it. It's entertaining in ways that go beyond just a visual reaction. So Piper had retur- uh, retired from the movie business after The Hustler. When the script of Carrie came her way, Piper did not like it at all. She, believing it to be quote unquote cliché. Her husband pointed out that De Palma usually took a comedic approach to his work at least at that point, he did. <laughs> uh, when Paradise. she reread the script uh, from that viewpoint, she decided to take the role. Now, De Palma and Stephen King didn't intend for the character to be necessarily comedic. And in my personal uh, interpretation, the character
2: doesn't really. The way they cut it into the film, it's not comedic, but you can see she you... didn't give a shit. And she was trying to go for something hammy over the top. But editing music and Sissy SpaceX. Tone it down.
1: i agree it's it's a perfect yes. it's a perfect uh, uh, s- stew of situation that makes it as a good as it great is so but with performance. that with that in mind did she turn chicken shit into chicken salad or could her performance have been better if she had taken the role seriously
2: no 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 definitely not seriously she i'm not going to say she turned chicken shit into chicken salad cuz the source material Played straight and horrible, like but, but from, Bratch-
1: from her perspective. From her
2: perspective, she's like, "Yeah, I'm just gonna have fun with this schlock. Nobody could take this seriously, and yeah, it's very fucking seriously. And it's one of the like the most, you know, influential horror movies ever made.
1: It, it really does kind of le- lead you into the. They're all
2: gonna the- laugh at you. You <laughs> said Adam Sandler in the <laughs> '90s was the name of his fucking album. Like 17 years after the movie came out."
1: it puts you in the mindset of like how different actors approach their work. And she's taking kind of a Marlon Brando approach of like, well, this is just acting. It's not important. And that works for certain people. You have people like Dustin Hoffman who stays up for 24 hours because he wants to feel tired on screen. So acting is a, is an interesting category of uh, how you approach something.
2: Everybody should do it. Like Anthony Hopkins, read the screenplay. I think it's like 80 times. Know your lines, find the
1: accent, and be done with it. I'm torn on her approach. Uh, Piper Laurie as Margaret White is my all-time favorite performance, and she legit scares the shit out of me. I, I think this is one of the few performances in the movie that has ever like given me chills and like made me have that like that slight. Th- thump of the heart of dread. You know what I mean? It's it's not
2: like I grew up around religious people. I definitely know what you mean.
1: Um, You know, I want to get your take on it because you you grew up in the in the church. What's your opinion of her performance um, in terms of like people that you have have actually I have
2: shit on my church and church school a lot, but there is nobody I know that was as bad as Piper Laurie in the Seventh-day Adventist school I went to. So I'll give them that. But definitely there are people that, like what I was telling you on the way up here, like her and her husband praying after they're married about sex being a sin, even growing up in my horribly oppressive, but not that bad, uh, religious background. Like, you, married people can have sex. That's fine. You're supposed to. That's how kids are made. But in this, like what I found genuinely disturbing, I'm like, I'd seen the religious extremes, and somehow they made it worse. I didn't know it at that time it could get worse. Like, me and him, we read, but it just gave head and blah, 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 all that. So I'm like, oh, my God, there are people that think sin, marital sex is a sin. That's scary as fuck. And I think I appreciated the scary more so than anybody who grew up in a more secular raising to realize how fucked up that is.
1: Well, the character of Margaret. Not
2: a Piper, though. Let's just get real.
1: She's she's wonderfully yeah. delusional. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is where Carrie makes her prom dress, and Margaret says, "Red." I should have known it would have been red. Now, this this line works because it, it's it works on accident because in the book, the dress is red. Yes, um, it's because it's supposed to like uh, like the horror Babylon. It's yep. supposed to be representative of that. She but to go all out. They made the dress pink uh different in the for the yeah. movie but uh, Sissy Spacek uh she uh improvised the line it's pink mom it's pink but they created a scene that actually makes that scene better because she she can't see the pink. No, she's oh, just she going. just she just sees the sin. Exactly.
2: You know? That's she, what makes it so effective I,
1: I think that's it's one like she's
2: the, playing it like a comedy don't get me wrong she's very disturbing but I'd also am um, amused how she and see how she thought from her perspective it was a comedy
1: I absolutely agree yeah I agree where does Margaret White rank in terms of horror movie moms I mean like we've got some, oh, some heavy hitters Mrs. Top. Bates Mrs. Voorhees uh, she'd be
2: in the top five at least you know like you said you have, Mrs. Bates, number one, obviously. Not up for debate with Mrs. Voorhees, you fanboy. Um, (laughs) Fuck. There
1: there are are quite a few. There are quite a
2: few to choose from. But, yeah, she'd be top five or definitely in the top ten. Like, I'm saying top five.
1: In terms of performance, maybe three. In terms of performance, I'm going to put her number one. In terms performance, of performance, okay. In, in terms of, of being iconic, I'm going to say top five. Yeah, top
2: five performance. Yeah, there's no other mother. The dummy and Mrs. in Psycho was not a great performance.
1: Hey, buddy, Bo- boners, mom. So we'll talk mo- Mom's more about slut. we'll talk more about Piper when we get to her death scene. Okay, but when doing research, I came across something that absolutely blew my mind and I had to work it into this episode in her 2011 autobiography, which is called learning to live out loud, a memoir. She revealed that she not only had a tryst with soon to become president Ronald Reagan. She lost her virginity to him. He (laughs) was in her forties. He was in his forties and she was, a little bit on the young side. Um in her teens. But in the movie that they did together, it's That's, called uh Louisa, Reagan played her father. Ew,
2: so isn't
1: isn't that a little ew, bit of that the,
2: makes it worse. But then then Ronnie met the throat goat, Nancy. And I love that story that she's like the throat goat of Hollywood back in the day.
1: To Ronald Reagan loved two things: jelly beans and getting his dick sucked. And and <laughs> Nancy gave him both. <laughs> All right. Uh, we've, we've had two Academy Award-winning cast members. Yep. We're going to make it three, and the answer is yes, we can. What a performance, and it's another one that I hold at the absolute tippy-top of my personal favorites. Sissy Spacek as oh Carrie my God, White. Oh, God. She's
2: so fucking good.
1: She's in the critically acclaimed Terrence Malick film, Badlands. She was Loretta Lynn and Coal Miner's Daughter, which named her— not only an Academy Award for Best Actress, but also she got a Grammy for the singing of the song. She's yep. in Oliver Stone's JFK. She was in Get Low with Bill Murray, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted again yep. in the bedroom, Crimes of the Heart, The River, Missing. All of these films, she was nominated for an Academy Award. She's one of the greatest living actresses. I mean, you have Meryl Streep, and to me, like Sissy Spacek is probably like right yeah, under honestly, her. not. Um, Prior to production, Brian De Palma and George Lucas, they would hold joint auditions for both Star Wars and Carrie. And there's a longstanding rumor that originally Sissy Spacek was cast as Princess Leia and Carrie Fisher as Carrie.
0: That's a lie.
1: But Fisher uh, did not get the role because she refused to appear nude and Carrie, uh, the roles were switched. However, Carrie Fisher refuted this in a magazine article called the force wasn't with them about actors who auditioned unsuccessfully for star wars carrie had this to say not only do i love being nude i would have been nude then but anyways (laughs) it's total bullshit so according to reports the role of carrie was proposed to both linda blair who ultimately turned it down for fear of being typecast and farrah fawcett who dropped out doing scheduling conflicts between those two names, would either of them have no, been better no. suited for the role? Right Nobody,
2: nobody's better. And I love how she got the, the true story, how she got it. And we'll, who we'll talk about yeah. that in just one moment. See, I know some shit Brandon doesn't think I know.
1: Now, I appreciate you doing a little I bit of some,
2: I did some, I boned up.
1: Uh, Linda Blair,
2: her. I don't blame her for turning that shit down at all. She probably should have taken it, though. She probably should have. I don't think she's a good enough actress. She well, see, that's his, the thing. By that point in time, she had them titties, and she was kind of looking good, but her acting skills were never great. Sissy Spacek nails this despite having to do nude and scenes. I, she's Far- amazing.
1: Farrah Fawcett is too pretty, and she was especially yeah, yeah, too you're pretty You're not going to believe brand. anybody thinks Farrah Fawcett's. That sounds like a studio... Request. Yeah, they and, was like, hey, we got the show. Yeah, and thankfully, that's not the direction they go. Yes. Their loss is absolutely Sissy's game because her performance nabbed her an Academy Award nomination, which, let's just be honest, never happens in horror. There's <laughs> a huge bias. No. But it was so strong, it couldn't be denied. That being said, Sissy's road was long and rough. and It was just full of potholes. So let's take a a step back and figure out how she got in this situation. In 1974, Sissy had auditioned for the role of Phoenix in Brian De Palma's excellent Phantom of the Paradise. She didn't get the role, but she did work on the movie as a set decorator with her now husband, Jack Fisk. Legendary art
2: designer and production designer,
1: second only to Mick Strong.
2: Second only to Mick Strong, but in *Tree of Life*, he filled the entire neighborhoods' houses with books and furniture and stuff for houses that were never shot. So he's very method. Did the *Revenant*?
1: Did a lot of shit. He's still working today and highly. But compared to Mick Strong, he can suck a dick. Exactly, and he has in front of
2: (laughs) Mick Strong for (laughs) Mick (laughs) Strong.
1: But he did the film's production design. Uh, Getting to work on the film got Sissy's foot in the door with De Palma, but he just didn't think of her as an actor. He thought of her, you know, as a crew person. Sissy was determined to change that perception. Art director Jack Fisk had this to say about Sissy getting cast as Carrie. Brian actually thought of Sissy as a set dresser. When I got together with Brian on Carrie, Sissy called him and said, Brian, I'm coming in for a test for Carrie, but I've also got an audition for a, vanqu- a vanqu- sorry, varnish commercial no. where I can make $10,000. Should I do that or come in? She thought he'd say, oh, please come in. I got to see you. But he actually said, well, sissy, (laughs) I think you ought to do the commercial. $10,000 for a commercial in the seventies, man. She got so upset that he sat down in our living room in Topeka cannon and read the book of Carrie from cover to cover. She didn't sleep. She got up the next morning, put Vaseline in her hair and put a little sailor's dress that her mother had made her in the seventh grade. She went down, she went into where they were doing the testing. Now, before we discuss her performance, let's play devil's advocate. Brian De Palma for just a moment. Um, the character of Carrie is written and described as chunky, mousy-haired, covered in pimples. Sissy was perceived as too pretty. She was actually a prom queen. That she was. Yeah. <laughs> so, for my money, the thing that makes this movie ultimately work, and you take the filmmaking and the writing aside, the thing that makes this movie work is that it taps into the very real issue of teenagers just naturally being assholes. The fact that all of them, all of you, the fact that she's dressed plain and her hair is a little greasy, but she could be, you know, very attractive, and her
2: mom's a local nutcase. Everybody knows, as but is shown in the. They're
1: they're being mean to her needlessly, so needlessly. There's not, there's not a, a, a concrete reason, which then doesn't necessarily make it. She's better, not good at volleyball, but the fact that she is just being ostracized needlessly. Yes. That's what makes you fall in love with the character. Absolutely. And the, if she was fat and overweight and all these things, I'm not saying that as a reason to hate somebody, but because she's just, you can see yourself in her. Like, if, especially if you're like a it, weird outfit. like we the, were weird kids in high school. I along with a lot of people. So, I don't know about you, buddy. Well, I'm just saying. I know what you're saying. saying I know what we, you're we were, saying. We were not jocks. And no, we, were we not, weren't
2: like the mainstream popular but I was also too big to be bullied, so. Well,
1: I'm not saying you were, but he I'm just was. saying that the feeling, yeah, the no, feeling of not being out, a Outside part of otherness,
2: to be othered for no reason. Like she's the precursor to the 80s trope of, oh, she's ugly because she has ponytail and the glasses. Like she really is. She's the er ur- example of that.
1: The thing that works for me ultimately is that She's pretty, but she's not Hollywood pretty. No, yeah, and, but absolutely. She, you perceive her as a real person, whereas you know the other girls in the movie—they're all they're a little—they're a little more on the glitzy side. And hot damn, Brian De Palma, you got great taste in women. I don't care if it didn't work out or not. Nancy Allen can fucking get it.
2: All today can <laughs> get
1: it. Sissy's dedication and willingness to go above and beyond for the role is obvious when you see the film. But oh yeah. Getting De Palma to believe that she was right for the role was just a huge hurdle. Reportedly, he nearly decided to have Amy Irving that's, that's play the role. That's where he was deck. going. But there was just something about Sissy's aura that ultimately changed his mind. De Palma had this to say Sissy's a phantom. She has this mysterious way of slipping into a part, letting it take over. She's got wider range than any young actress I know. So Sissy officially gets cast and she decides to immerse herself in the role. She's going to have to do just like unorthodox stuff to really isolate herself and get into the the mindset of all this. She locks herself up in her dressing room and she just wallpapers it with like religious iconography. And she studied Gustav Dior's illustrated Bible from like cover to cover. One specific thing that she studied was the, the body language of people who were being stoned. stoned. So every time you see her and she has like these like you know, cowardly poses, she took that her, from yeah. a specific source and knowing that now it I don't know it's given me a complete uh different appreciation for her performance especially because, during
2: all the plug it up. <laughs> She's being pelted and stoned.
1: It's 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 fucking fantastic and as one specific thing that you have to take into account is that she's doing this because she's being mentally tortured by her mother, who Every is day. religiously fanatical. I mean, beyond beyond, beyond, beyond what it normal. says in the Bible. Fat Tony is someone who grew up in the church, and I'll keep harping on this. Yes. D- does this resonate as representative of somebody the, who is just... A, too far gone with it. This is too
2: far. Like if this shit's beyond the worst person I can think of in any, uh, growing up, any of the people I was around, this is so far, but this is the people they would mock. Like my parents and their friends would mock because apparently there were some crazy Southern Baptists around Morristown. When I, before I can remember, they'd make fun of them as religious zealots. So no, like I, this has no resonance to me because like I said, as I said, when they're talking about like, oh, we were married and praying to not fuck. That made no sense to me. I grew up, you're married. Go ahead. Go, go to fuck town, baby. Sex has traditionally been demonized. It's always demonized outside of the constructs of marriage, but it's so far, but this is why she's beyond the pale and beyond the normal. I'm I'm
1: agreeing to you. And. We have different perspectives because you grew up in the church. And I'm like, my family went to church, but we were not like, you know, really, really. They were Satanists. We we worshiped the devil. Baphomet. me. (laughs) Um, But I think this actually affects me more because without having like a truly pure vision of what church was like, when you I just saw thought that like this, was how church was. I, I was like, "Holy shit!" That I get scared that. me. It scared me to the point that when we would go to church, I'm just like looking, like, which one of you people is like Margaret White, and and looking at the the kids that would go to certain sur- uh, Sunday school, like, which one of you kids is hor- being horribly abused uh, to a degree, you know, like mentally that you are Jesus. afraid of sex yeah. to the point where you get your period and you, and you think you're you think you're dying, you know. So puberty obviously is a huge theme in the book and it's perfectly spotlighted in the opening scene of the film where Carrie well, gets her first theme. period. All right, Tony, give me your top 3 shower scenes in Brian De Carrie. Uh, dressed to kill. The
2: chainsaw scene in uh, uh Scarface. <laughs> That's the whole reason I want to set up that joke. It's also
1: No, definitely, definitely.
2: Scarface is number three. All
1: right. Uh, one of the reasons De Palma's work has been really criticized is lots
2: sort of, of tits, a lot of titillation.
1: Yes, but it's the juxtaposition with like uh, and t- TNA and violence, and uh, uh, that's not really applicable in really so much in the uh, uh, Scarface scene. There's no
2: T, but there's a lot of or A, but there's violence and
1: sexy man. So yeah, there you go. Well, if that's your thing, then that's that's your thing. In this scene. <laughs> You are you're seeing it, and it's very playful, and it's in slow motion, and these ethereal these and nymphs, and it's it's like it's every thirteen year old's boy's dream. What's going on in the girls' yes. locker room? They're play, you know, they're giggling and you know, touching each other's boobs and stuff like that. And then you have this hard right turn where it is absolute visceral horror of somebody. This bo- is why their this body is,
2: betraying. Them. This is why this is a defensible thing. It lures you in with a titillation of TNA, and you're almost like, I'm about to see puss, and then you see blood and screams and horror, and like, no, this is a horror movie, motherfucker. It lets you know right up top.
1: I think, and, and I, this is just my own personal opinion, I think this scene is legitimately scary. Yeah, it's, it's and, and tragic. And the, it's and, not just scary, it's sad as fuck. And it's this for a couple of reasons. A, This is something that absolutely could happen in real life. Um, It's unlikely. Unlikely. It's outside of the spectrum of norm, but it's not impossible. But it is possible. You know, neglected children exist regardless of religious denomination. Secondly, it's because the fear and ridicule that they thrust on her in this moment, even if they're not intending it to be scarring, so, so traumatic. I can, only, I can only imagine this is something you're not going to be able to get over because you go back to school. That's a, that's something that's going to follow you forever. And I'll put this in modern terms, like in 2023, that'd be over social media to the point where I, you can understand can why, why, exactly why people yeah. kill themselves because like something horrible is just put into every conceivable facet of of life where you you can't escape it. Yes. Um, so. I, I think it's legitimately scary, and I think this, oh, absolutely. That in terms of starting the movie off with a bang, you could not yeah. nail your tone any better than this scene right here. The level of terror, it was on the forefront of what uh, De Palma was asking for the scene. He, uh, It was Sissy's boyfriend, oddly enough, that got the her in the mindset of how to portray this. He was hit by a Mack truck. Jesus Christ when he was he was a kid he was looking at like a neighbor's christmas lights and he described this to her in such visceral and detailed ways that that's how she played the scene and in my most recent rewatch putting that in the mindset just everything's oh fine and then absolute horror what the fuck it's it is so so powerful when you talk about scenes that have like an evocative uh, evocative quality to them something that's just going to you would have to be so heartless not to to feel something. I'm going to give moment.
2: Gen Z some credit. Thankfully, this is over 50 years ago. I don't think there would be as many cruel teenagers these days. I think somebody in this social media woke agenda. No, I'm very well. It's fine. But like, they take more pity. Like, so, like this could kind of only happen then, and it's so horrific. It's just.
1: Well, I think a lot of it comes down to geography, like what part of the country they're from, what part of the world they come. Let's make, let's remake Carrie, but in like Cardiff, um, you know, Iraq or wherever. Okay, let's not. That's uh, too much horror. There wouldn't, You wouldn't need psychic powers. They just stoned her to death for getting her yeah, period. Yeah, it's like, how dare you? All right. Okay. So,
2: Carrie... Uh, <laughs> Are we going to talk about how they got comfortable with the nude scene? All the other women not wanting to do nude scenes, or do is that something I, I mean, can you pop can, in? You can Pop it in. All the a lot of the women on the set were real reticent to do their nude scenes, so Sissy Spacek did her nude scene first to show the others, and they incorporated that. And I guess that popped the tops off some bitches and got some titties in the yeah, movie. Yeah, and
1: Brian De had actually said like, if it'll make you happy, I'll get I'll get naked and shoot. Yeah, the scene he would have happily done it, and. You know,
2: Sissy had the worst tits of all of them. Let's just be real. She's a real woman. She's not Hollywood hot. All them other titties are Hollywood hot. Two stars. Again, Fat Tony yet, yet says, check it out.
1: Yet again, Nancy Allen. Nancy I, Allen, I love you to I don't care day. if you're like 80 years old. My wife
2: can watch. I
1: will, I will shatter your fucking hip. <laughs> you can call me RoboCop when I'm plugging you. <laughs> okay, we're, we're going too far. Nancy, we love and respect you. You're great. All right, Carrie's emergence into womanhood is confusing enough, but she also has the added stress of these powers that she can't miracles,
2: really... Mama. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and she goes to the library and is finding these things out about herself, and then they don't really harp on it too much, which I really commend. They keep in the background. A moder- it's a show, don't tell. A modern movie would over-explain this stuff to the point of it, you know, like, what's did the they point? do that in the
2: new one? Or did a little, you a little it?
1: bit, a little bit. Um. But her her powers, it's one of those things in the movie that they they easily could have gone too far with it, and in a modern movie they absolutely do. But the fact that they they really reserve themselves, and you, she has that point where she's on the bicycle, and the guy, the kid on the bike, is like really badly dubbed, which is another one of the.
2: Small creepy name. Carrie, creepy Carrie, and
1: then she gives her that look. And this whole movie is Chekhov's gun; it's plant
2: and payoff. The principal keeps calling her Cassie. She flips, they fuck with her. She flips the ashtray. It's Carrie, creepy Carrie. She flips the bike. Her mom gets pissy with her. She breaks the mirror. Yeah. What happens when they fuck with her at the prom? She
1: fucks back. But I love that, like. Basically in, in terms of horror movies, this is the definition of a slow burn. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it's your third act payoff. You get you get the horror of the reality of horror at the beginning, but those moments of psychic influence, they're just peppered through enough yeah. to keep you keep engaged. You going. Keep
2: you ratcheted up.
1: Um Okay, so There have been two other actresses who have played Carrie. (sighs) Um, Angela Bettis, who I absolutely love. If you've ever seen the movie May, uh, directed by Lucky McKee, uh, she's fantastic. That movie was made for television, and then we have the big screen remake with Chloe Grace Moretz. I tried Um, to watch
2: this to to contrast it with uh, other stuff, and I got a little further than I told Brandon, but I'm like, as soon as I see Julianne Moore taking thinking about taking scissors to a baby I'm like the movie's peaked right there I don't want to go further
1: well it neither one PG-13. of PG-13 neither one of these performances can even compare no, to City Space X so where do you rank Carrie, Carrie as a character all time in terms of horror oh god top 5 top maybe top definitely top 5 i'm not going to say in horror because that that is as a completely Arbitrary argument because there's so many characters that could you could easily throw in for li- valid reasons. In terms of just movie characters, the t- the character of Carrie for me, all time top ten. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yes, I, so I,
2: iconic, identify whether you tragic. agree with me
1: or not. That to me yes. it is a top ten performance, top ten character. It is so ingrained in the in the film world that it will never be replicated. Yeah, so top ten for me. We've got tons to more to cover in this in-depth retrospective, but first we're going to take a break
0: to hear some words from our sponsors. Hi, everybody, it's me, Boner the Skeleton, mascot of the Rants from the Black Lodge Podcast, here to tell you about some genuine, officially licensed merchandise from our good friends at Video Nasties. Now Video Nasties, they offer T-shirt pins and hats from some of your favorite cult classic horror films like Pieces, Street Trash, and even Lucio Fulci's the Beyond. Oh, and there's so much more. So what are you waiting for? Go now to www.videonasties.com. That's www.videonasties.com. The prices are low, but the quality is high, and that's a boner guarantee. But if you don't buy something... BIM
1: FUCK! fuck yeah. yeah. Alright, welcome back, Rant Army. As likable as Carrie White is, she can be equally menacing and quite fuck deadly. Yes. So let's check out her mini victims. Number one, Norma collects the prom ballots, but switches them out for fake ones to ensure that Carrie will take the stage and be bestowed with a crown of jewels and a blanket of blood. Sue realizes that Carrie is being set up and storms the stage in an attempt to thwart Chris's malicious plot, but is stopped by Miss Collins who believes it is Sue who is trying to ruin Carrie's big night. With Sue removed from the gym, Chris orgasmically licks licks her <laughs> ruby <laughs> red lips. And let's go of the rope that suspends the bucket of pig's blood over Carrie's head. A fountain of blood pours down on Carrie as a bucket falls and conks Tommy on the head. Gun to my head, I would have to say this was a survivable injury. But according to the internet, yeah, I was about to say this is a mass kill. This is it. a fatal blow. What do you give this kill? Oh, it's most of these kills are threes.
2: I'm sorry, it's a it's a. Build up. It's it's this is a it's a one actually. A yeah, bucket to the head. This is the greatest American hero.
1: I'm going to completely disagree. Okay. I give this a seven, and the reason I give this a seven is everything up to it. Is this is the one of the? It's the setup to one of the most iconic moments in, See, in only the only decent guy in the
2: whole gym's death. You're right. I'm not disagreeing. This is true. That's true. Yes.
1: But it's the filmmaking; it's the way that it was executed yes. that that makes the impact. The slow motion of the hitting and him falling and the blood going on to carry. This is a moment of horror that will last. Forever.
2: I'm just thinking of The Kill Itself. The so kill itself, I agree with
1: you. The Kill Itself, I am really. writing, I'm reigning on a curve yes, because of the cinematic way in which it was delivered. Now, Tommy's played by William Cat, who you may remember from...
2: Greatest American Hero and Blue Lagoon, the sister fucker. A
1: personal favorite of mine, House. The yes. character of Tommy He really bugs me. Uh, he's ultimately a decent person, but he's only going to prom with Carrie because Sue asked him to... So, well intentioned or not, does Tommy deserve to share? Tommy some doesn't of the deserve to die. No, no. No, I'm he does not die, but he deserve does he deserve the responsibility for Carrie kind of being put in the position? He to go lit,
2: him asking her to the prom, lifted her to those heights where she could be sent crashing down. But he doesn't deserve responsibility. No,
1: unintentionally or not, unintentionally. He does, yes, he does play with her. There's emotions. no. So it yeah, it is a, it is somewhat true. of a Greek tragedy. In yes, that it was a, I- inevitable. You're right. All right, number two, being baptized in blood has sent Carrie on her, on her first class yeah. trip to Cuckooville. The mocking laughter from her classmates—some genuine, some hallucinated—it triggers the memory of her mother. I'm laugh at you. Thank you we going to laugh at you. And all hell breaks loose. Carrie physically shuts all the doors in the gym with her mind, trapping her classmates inside, and for added dramatic effect, changes the lights from a funky disco to a hellish red in a psychic fury. Carrie manipulates a water hose to blast full on Norma. She will die later in the fire, but according to filmmakers, the blast doesn't kill her. But it did cause her to have a really fucked up real situation. And we'll talk about that a little later on. In an effort to stop the hose, a random classmate wrangles the hose and redirects it to the microphone on stage, which <laughs> electrocutes Principal Morton to death.
2: What do you give this kill? I give it a 6 out of 10 because it's
1: so funny. I give it an 8. Oh, why. He's way higher than me. Prince, Normally I'm the higher. Principal Morton was a complete dick to Carrie. Wasn't there two people the on the mic? Wait, I'm, getting, okay. I'm getting to it. Get into it. Earlier in the movie, and he had no interest. Cassie. In, he had no interest in actually helping her. No. He it just was wanted just to get he rid just gotta get her out of the office. So I'm absolutely fine with him dying, especially because it's prolonged and painful. Fair enough. We're gonna see a shift in terms of Carrie's victims of deserving and not deserving, but this one I feel like it's deserved. Principal Morton is played by uh, character actor Stefan Girash, I'm probably mispronouncing that, who career stretches all the way back to the 1950s, appearing in such things as Gunsmoke Bonanza, Clint Eastwood, um, Western High Plains Drifter. But most importantly, he was junior, or it was in junior, which was directed by Ivan Reitman, yeah. who also directed Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. Uh, joking aside, Principal Morton could also be looked at as someone who pushed Carrie to the brink. Uh, After her menstruation incident, he is incredibly uncaring, you know, continually calling her by the wrong names and everything. So does Principal Morton deserve to die for his mistreatment of Carrie? I mean, none of these
2: people, except like uh, the two who pulled the bucket, deserve to die. But horror movie logic says, yeah, he's fine to kill. Go ahead and kill him.
1: I think think that from the point of view, you're kind of on her side at this point. Yeah, fuck him. Um, so yeah, fine. Fuck you. All right. Principal Morton in the novel is he's more sympathetic. He tries to help Carrie. In the book, he survives uh, the prom, but um, but he you know resigns from the school, feeling partially responsible for everything that happened. So he's he, he has a different fate in the book, but is the change from the book more satisfying? Yeah, I want to you see know, all those motherfuckers you want to die. See him, you want to Fuck see them. Die. They're
2: so cruel.
1: In an effort to keep this episode from shorter than 10 hours, we're going to shortchange some of the actors, unfortunately, which is a shame, because everybody's terrific. Chief among them, PJ Souls, who you may remember from the original Halloween. And what else? uh, Rock and Roll High School and Stripes. Bill Murray, who you just got busted again. Um, Fuck that bitch, too. She's way too into it. She was only supposed to be in the opening scene of the movie and maybe in the, the locker room, but where she improvised hitting Carrie with her red hat and all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, we, we have oh, to yeah. keep this character around. She blew her eardrum out in the movie during yep, during the scene. I did, with that the, was a fact I know. So she suffered for her art. PJ Soul is uh, very active on the convention I scene. I got to meet
2: her in Gatlinburg at that horror convention that we went to way forever ago. Where I met Ernie Hudson and got yeah. my little Polaroid. I got to open a door for her, looking like a grandma. I'm like, oh nice to meet you, ma'am. When yeah. I was outside smoking. So yeah. bless her heart. We, lo- I'd still we love Still fuck you. Grandma PJ souls. We anyway. love
1: you. We love you, PJ. All right, number three. Totally. Here's the point where things yes. start to shift. All shit, right, change. here we go. Although Miss Collins has had Carrie's best interest at heart, Carrie hallucinates Miss Collins mocking her from the crowd. After her crimson bath, terrified beyond measure from the chaos, Miss Collins backs into a wall and is squished flat by the backboard of the basketball goal. What do you give
2: this kill? I give this an eight because that bitch smacked Carrie during her worst moment of her life. I give it an
1: eight. Brutal. I gave her a nine out of ten. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, we're close. She, She may be the only person in the movie who legitimately doesn't deserve to die other than Sue to some degree. Um, because she's the really the first. She tries. She tries to like to. She's the Mariah Carey and
2: Precious of this movie. God, Somebody that's not who a tries. Reference
1: I was expecting to hear. Miss Collins, if you think about it, she's the only the only really truly decent person in the movie. She she isn't good to carry out of guilt uh, or pity like Sue or Tommy. She's just a good person. But because of this, it makes her death impactful. Yes. Um, this is the necessary kill of the movie to switch it from these people deserve it to now carries the It's just a, a victim, killer
2: a blind force of chaos victim to killer yes
1: um, you have to have this kill to make the audience hate her this is yeah. her heel turn in exactly. wrestling, there in you wrestling go. terms I've uh, had
2: sex with a woman so I don't care. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's true to most wrestling fans uh, Miss Mo- Collins was played okay, by Travis. Betty Buckley Who made yes. her on-screen debut in this film She would later go on to star on 102 episodes Of 8 is Enough Among uh, many other yep. notable film roles uh, 18 episodes on the HBO series Oz With Ernie, Ernie Hudson, Hudson Who was in Ghostbusters You just got busted again yep. Now aside from Carrie Betty is best known as the voice of Broadway uh, and considered one of the theater's most respected and legendary leading ladies. Yeah. So she's had a, a vast and interesting career.
2: Blowjob. Blowjob.
1: <laughs> South Park. <laughs> I, I South Park road. reference. Anyway. Broadway. Broadway bro down. <laughs> uh, all right, number four. Just like Principal Morton, Mr. Frome, who was elect- who was also electrocuted by the microphone stand. Uh, he's left sizzling considerably longer. He is shocked backwards into a light board that erupts into a blaze. What do you give this kill? I give this one an eight, because fuck
2: him. He's such a piece of shit. Even when he's clapping in the montage, he's like, he's like looking away. Fuck that dude. Oh, bupid. You think it's pretty? That's all? Fuck him.
1: It, it's, it adds a little bit more to the kill uh, from before, because you kind yeah. of think it's kind of separated. Um, but it... I wish, I wish there was there was a little more to it than it just being the same, uh, an extension from the yes. kill before. But that's, I wish it would have
2: got raped by a badger, but yes, it didn't. Happen. Raped
1: to death by Grizzly from the movie Grizzly, which came out in 1976. <laughs> um, I, I gave it also an eight. I, I, yeah. It's 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 a really good kill. I, I would have it higher had it uh, been independent of the editing yeah. makes it a little disjointed. I got you. Um, all right. Number five to number 69. Yes. With the school gym now fully engulfed in flames, Carrie glides through the wreckage, ex- ex- exits the school, but her close, closes her frightened cla- I'm laughing at Tony's... Classmate. I'm sorry. I'm throwing them She frightened all. her classmates inside, yeah. damning them to be burned alive. What do you give this? I got to give overall
2: like a, a six out of ten. Fuck those kids, man. Most of them. I, I'm sure not all of them were bad, but fuck them.
1: I gave this an eight. The shot of Carrie numbly walking yes. out of the building as cries for help and the surrounding like the roaring fire fills the audio mix. It that is that it it plays out wide of the shot of her yes. coming out there, and she's almost just in silhouette. I just I, it's it's a visually Iconic. striking uh, screenshot from a movie. I, I absolutely love it, and and because she becomes emotionless, yeah. that's when she becomes menacing. It's all that look in her yes. eyes at that moment. All right, number 70 and number 71. Chris and a very drunk Billy manage to escape the school and attempt to commit vehicular manslaughter by running carryover, but they are spent spiraling by deathly psychic glance. And then blown up. Just to make sure uh, you, you fell, then blown up. Yes, the car up. rolls over and yeah. tad insult injury. It explodes. What do you give this kill? 8 out of 10. I only have one ten, and you know what it has to be now. I gave it an eight out of ten as well. These two characters, um, you want to see them get their justice deserves. Yeah, suffer. Chief chief among them, they're the the most deserving to die, if anybody truly is in this situation. And they're just such shitty people. And he can't even drink a beer. Most of it goes down his face. Fuck John Travolta in this movie. With a guy with a chin that big, it probably it's hard to get... (laughs) um, I don't know. Uh, Billy was played by fresh-faced John Travolta. He auditioned on his lunch break while filming the hit TV series Welcome Back, Carter, and reportedly showed up for his audition still dressed as Vinnie Barbarino. That's a little interesting tip. I didn't know that. Reason. Travolta isn't the only well-known actor to make an early appearance in Carrie because we also have Nancy Allen, her perfect breast. Oh, I love you, Nancy. Perfect, I mean, perfect, n- perfect. natural perfect. breast. Mm-hmm. Alan, from my generation, known for her role as Officer Lewis in RoboCop, one of my all-time favorites. She hadn't been staring
2: at Dick. RoboCop wouldn't have been around. That's Alex Murphy would be alive. That's true. She had to see. Um, BBC.
1: <laughs> BBC that guy's name is Johnson too so there's there's a dick joke in there somewhere oh uh, actually no that's not Johnson it's it's something else Johnson is the other the oh uh, you fucked it up I let's move on other. yes all right so a um, few a uh, few roles in uh, she ends up marrying Brian De Palma yep. so he he saw what he liked and had to put it on I mean, you know he put a ring on it.
2: Smarter than fucking Spielberg, he didn't lose a hundred million dollars to yeah. Nancy Allen.
1: I doubt that uh, he's ever had a hundred million dollars. Um, oh, I'm sure, mate. Well, he's probably right. he he's, he may have had a hundred million dollars in that kind of money, but never yeah. at one time. No, you're right. You're right. Um, she would reteam uh, with. Uh, John Travolta on a couple of movies Dressed to Kill um, I'm sorry um, Brian De Palma um, um, uh, Brian De Palma on Dressed to Kill but she would also do Blowout with Brian De Palma and with yep, John Travolta a
2: much better performance by John Travolta.
1: Yes, he's he's genuinely good. Yeah, at, Blowout's blowout. great. I just got Blowout on laser disc, it's a fantastic movie. All right, number 72, Drenched in Blood. Carrie returns home. Lit by hundreds of ominous candles, Carrie proceeds upstairs to the bathroom, disrobes and scrubs away the dried blood on her body. Now clean, Carrie is embraced by her mother who delivers one of the most haunting monologues in film history
2: but it's prefaced by one of those heart just hold me mama just hold me
1: that's heartbreaking it's the one moment of lucidity she has. Yeah,
2: she's back in her. No, from this moment on, she's back in herself, and this is the tragedy of it. Anyway, continue. I'm sorry. Uh,
1: believing that Carrie's birth was the result of original sin, Margaret plunges a, a kitchen knife deep into the back of her daughter. The impact sends her prone body down the stairs. But in retaliation, Carrie sends a bevy of sharpened instruments instruments into the body of Margaret, pinning her to a doorway. Margaret's reaction to being penetrated is less. Like being stabbed, and more like being stabbed by something down there, and it just the scene is creepy. It's visceral. It's impactful. Margaret dies from her injuries, but she moans to the yeah. It's
2: the only scene where she's wearing something almost. It's not sheer, but it's light and almost see through, and almost sensual and worldly, and not just black and harsh and comforter. And she she you know gets penetrated. This is a 10 out of 10.
1: I agree. 100%. The, uh, the, the only 10 out of 10. Yes. Uh, allow allow me to verbally filate the performance of yes. Laurie. This is Laurie. Suck it, Daddy. This is my favorite screen performance of all time, and this kill is fantastic. It deserves... It's, it's a kill deserving of a great character because it's prolonged, and the acting in combination with the effects, it's just everything is perfect. She dies in the same pose as Saint, the St. Saint Sebastian statue... And Carrie's praying closets. So Which is
2: supposed to be Jesus, but they only found the St. Sebastian with the light-up thing. Weird, that's a weird, fact I weird, yeah. creepy eyes. I love that prop. Anyway.
1: So, a little bit of trivia about this. Uh, Piper Laurie's death took an entire day to film. Margaret's body forms a tableau similar to the religious icon of St. Yes. Sebastian. But uh, he was martyred with arrows, so the arrows are, are the kitchen implements. Ah. So that's a really, really uh, nice touch that probably wasn't necessary, but it kind of ties into the whole. It's what makes idea. De Palma
2: a, a, a truly great filmmaker, not just a schlock joke.
1: All right, number 73, last but certainly not least, really realizing what she's done, Carrie shoots up. To her feet, with a howl of anguish, removes the knives to unpin her mother. Carrie moves her mother's body to the praying closet as the house implodes from an outpouring of psychic grief. Essentially, Carrie commits suicide by being crushed by debris, burned to a cinder in the coming fire, and even goes the extra step and buries herself and her mother as the house sinks into the earth.
2: Nine out of ten. Like it's it's only not a ten out of ten because I just it's too sad to be ten out of ten to enjoy it that much.
1: I gave it a ten out of ten and I don't and, disagree, and, but and this yeah. is why. Because this movie was made in nineteen seventy-six and it's it shows restraint. Yeah. No, it, I get that. It, this this scene in a modern movie would just be a CGI nightmare and it would under it would underscore the performances. Or undermine the performances. It'd be a
2: CGI fire. She screams in agony, very badly looking as the house collapses.
1: You know, in a weird way, Margaret turns out to kind of be right all along, which is also another thing that it's really... It's self-fulfilling. Really, it's only her fault. It really scared me as a kid. Um, so we're not going to get into a religious debate, but, but at the end of the day, we have to try and distill Stephen King's intent with Carrie. Is Carrie a cautionary tale of religious extremes, or is it just... Uh, about child abuse in general child abuse
2: in general under the veil under the guise of religious extremism he's always he's he's not an atheist he believes in a god he has a lot of issues with religious extremism though. that's a thing throughout all his work
1: it's a turtle that we live on the back of
2: no the turtle don't even get me going (laughs) I'm a Dark Tower fanatic. so
1: As the story goes, fantastical. So I don't know if there's reinforcement for the existence of God and the devil, like in the Carrie universe. But
2: I think this is tragedy because in his eyes, the God is there. But Carrie has crossed that line. And not only did her mother ruin her, her mother damned her to hell. When it says Carrie White burns in hell, that's kind of the sick denouement of it all. Yeah, she is. She has gone beyond forgiveness. She is
1: a self. Uh, it's a self-fulfilling,
2: self-induced tableau. Self-induced tableau of her mother's horrible abuse on her.
1: All right, guys, we're, we're finally at the Woo! end. And I, I don't know about you, but I'll just talk about blood and guts. I, I could use a drink. So once you finish your Carrie retrospective, we would like all of you out there to join the Rant Army. I don't like and where to this is going. Pop in your VHS, Laserdisc, DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, or digital copy of Carrie, and let's play a fun drinking game oh. only if you're 21 or older. Let's Or no, unless you're cool. No underage drinking. <laughs> so let's drink it in, man. All right, I want you to take a shot whenever anyone refers to Carrie as creepy. Take a shot whenever Principal Morton calls Carrie the incorrect name. Take a shot whenever Chris applies lipstick. You're you're going to be fucking drunk by that point. Uh. Take a shot whenever Mrs. White refers to anything as wicked. Take a shot whenever the prom is mentioned or shown. That's once not not like every shot of the prom yeah. you'll be dead take a double shot during the terrible prom shopping montage just to make it go down a little easier however if you're punishing your liver uh, is not your forte and we have a carry inspired cocktail that might be a little more in your uh, oh wheelhouse to wet your tele- telekinetic whistle so you're going to take Four ounces of Agua de Jamaica. It's basically sweet flavored water. kind of oh, yeah. tastes like hibiscus. Uh, one ounce of white rum. One ounce of Grand Mariner, which is, uh, or Mariner, uh, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Yeah. It's yeah. basically orange liqueur. It's that fancy shit. One ounce of dark rum. A few maraschino cherries. So here's your directions. For the blood clots. Pour the Agua de Jamaica into a glass. White rum, Grand Mariner, into you know an ice shaker. Yeah. You're going to shake it up and um, you're going to strain the contents into a glass you're going to add the dark rum on top and garnish with the cherries if you follow the directions correctly it's going to look like pig's blood probably not the most appetizing to look at but it's going to wet your whistle so drink responsibly Ran Army
2: I have done grape or uh, uh, strawberry jello shots drinking this movie before in the past and it's like a period thing so that's also works that's a little gross um, <laughs> oh, I'm a horrible person. What the <laughs> fuck
1: do you expect? All right. I think you and I have made it clear that we absolutely love Carrie. But just to make it official, let's render our final verdict. I'll do mine. Uh, Carrie is in my top ten favorite movies of all time. It features two of my all-time favorite performances of all time. What minor issues I have to you know wave my finger at, they don't detract from Brian De Palma's Carrie as being as close to perfect as maybe any film has ever been at least in the horror genre it's not just a great horror film it's just a great film period oh it's definitely
2: my top 10 favorite horror movies of all time absolutely every performance is perfect per- perfectable uh perfect and impeccable perfectable and- and perfectable works. i made a new word fuck all y'all um, no, it's it's amazing. Like this whole movie, like again, it's cheesy and dated because it's 47 years old and you've seen a lot of the other things and other things, but they're there because they're stealing from Carrie. So no, it's absolutely it's it's like I said, it's an A, not an A plus, because I like a few things better. If I say top ten, it's between seven, eight, and nine, somewhere in there. But definitely top
1: ten. Before we close up, shop, we gotta take a moment to talk about our six-year anniversary. Uh, I thought this would be a good point to talk about some of the favorite moments from this past year. Slasher sequel showdown. That was a ton yes, of fun. Yes, that was a good one. We, we helped with our guy behind the camera. Um, we started You Just Got Busted. Uh, there will be more episodes of that coming along soon. It's been fun to kind of go back and revisit oh, yeah. some you know some that cheesy Ghostbuster episodes. Rance After Dark has been continuing oh, on. Oh, We got some stuff coming there. Uh, yeah, we do. Uh, Leprechaun 2 everybody seems to love that really? episode uh, just uh, all the because I'm great the, well we had we, <laughs> yeah, a good we had a good time and, and you know coming up with you know ridiculous uh, scenarios but I think our our, our uh, biggest episode at least recently Nightmare on Elm Street 5 Lisa oh, Wilcox and Nick yes. giving us an interview just great great stuff but we also were lucky enough to do some awesome cons this year. Fuck we yeah. did Scream Queen Shockathon. We won Best Documentary for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yep, five-year anniversary. Uh, we got drunk with Rob Mello and oh Mick. God, it was so cool. So much fun. Uh, Bride of Frank and Con.
2: Bride of FrankenCon was, was amazing. I, 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 Man. Shout out to the pool though, because I spent every morning at six a.m. as soon as it opened in the pool. The pool
1: was great.
2: Yes, um,
1: hanging out with with Brian, buddy Brian Bremmer. Yeah. We hung out with Mick. He was Mick. He was right next to us the whole time doing the uh, commentary with Brian Bremer For yes, I uh, was a Ed.
2: surprise honor. And we we didn't Patty Mullins. Patty Mullins.
1: Patty Mullins. Great Q and A with her. Now, obviously, we got some people that we want to thank. Uh, T.J. Bowser for giving us a home at Project yes. Louder. Check him out www.projectlouder.net Big thanks to Jason Davis woo, 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 woo. for his technological uh, binds uh, we've we've chained him to the computer back there and uh, we really appreciate. We'll let you uh, out for good behavior pretty soon uh, uh, Man, Fat Fuck Scott, Stanked Getty, Titty Flipping Travis uh, well, fuck Travis but fuck you are great cheerleaders for the podcast. We love you guys but the biggest person is not just a person, it's a group of people, and that's the Rant Army. Every single person oh, yes. who's ever downloaded thank this podcast, you. sent kind words, and endures our nonsense, you make this possible for us. So Absolutely. So thank each and every one of you. All right. Nothing but positive things on the horizon. We've got some cool things coming up over the years, so please stick it out with us. Hell yeah. Till next time, Rant Army. You can find us on... Multitude of podcasting platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So go give us a sub at yes. your leisure. Or actually, fuck it. Do it right now. Do it right this second. Follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge. And don't forget to stop by our homepage at juicykruger.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, go buy a t shirt, a sticker, or a mug from our web store at rantarmy.com. For Fat Tony, this is Brandon A. Lane signing off. Till next time, Rant Army, keep marching.